Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm so excited to be with you all today. Let's go around and introduce everybody who's on the mic today. Danielle. Hi, my name is Danielle Van Hook, and I'm the director of youth theater programs at the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, uh, split in the border of Iowa and Illinois. Josh. Josh Benson with the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, kicking it here in Marion, Illinois. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And I, of course, am Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. So I'm so excited to uh, get into the interview we're going to have today. But first, I wanted to ask you all, when you were a kid, was there a certain like kids and family musician that you really loved and spent a lot of time listening to or hanging out with? Or did you just like skip directly to adult music when you were a kid? I think I skipped directly to adult music, but mostly it's just because that's what my parents were listening to. Um, but honestly, the first thing that came to mind was Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. I, for whatever reason, as a child, I loved that song. <laughs> like that song just made me so happy. And I don't know why, but like when I think about my childhood, like that song is very prominent. That's like so fantastic, but also completely inappropriate, Kevin. <laughs> I know. I, like, I, I get it. Oh, well, do you want to hear something inappropriate? <laughs> Go for it, Danielle. Uh, so like Kevin, I mostly just listened to whatever my parents were listening to. And they were pretty solid Meatloaf fans. And um, for a lot, I mean, we had all the cassette tapes. And I mean, we would just listen to them on repeat. And the song that I loved was the 12 minute Paradise by the Dashboard Light. <laughs> Knew all the words, every single one of them. Loved it. Loved to sing the girl part at the end. And when I was like three, maybe, Meatloaf was coming to Pittsburgh. And I was like, oh my gosh, we should go and see him. Um, and my mom was obviously like, well, that would be wildly inappropriate. <laughs> Yeah, so that was like the first like really real music I remember as a kid that the first album that I remember having um, is the soundtrack to Anastasia. Yes, Danielle. Um, which is a banger. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> On the cassette tape, I still own it. It is in my house as we speak. So I second that. Brian, what about you? So I don't know that kids music was so much of a thing when I was growing up. I'm a little bit older than you guys, other than on television. So um, you know, I, I used to love Kids Incorporated and Zoobly Zoo and Magic Garden. Of course, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. I was a big Mr. Rogers fan. And of course, they always sang and had songs. But other than when I watched the TV show, I didn't like listen to them. I had an older cousin, Sherry, and she got me listening to a lot of, I guess, what you'd call adult music. It was Michael Jackson in the early days when it was one of my youngest memories and Cyndi Lauper, who I loved. And my favorite song nice. was She Bop, which, of course, was totally inappropriate for a young kid. <laughs> and when I found out like years later what that song was really about, I'm like, oh, my God, I was going around the house singing my head off to that thing. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. Josh. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to carry that theme on. We had a record player, and we had a couple of records on there. Some old country stuff, like comedy stuff, which we loved. But then we also had like a Sesame Street Live record. And then I always remember singing Eric Clapton's Bad Love with my dad, just to carry on that, you know, all of us growing up with totally inappropriate music for our ages. So for me, I also grew up with a record player. My mom has an incredible vinyl collection. And I was obsessed with the Go-Go's when I was like maybe like third, fourth grade. Uh, I put that thing 
on uh, on repeat on the record player. Um, but I would say like core memory from when I was little, little was the Skidamarinky Rinky Dink song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from, is it, uh, let's see. Eureka's yeah, Castle. Lois and, oh. Yeah, Sharon, Lois, and Bram. Um, and, you know, you do the hand gestures that went with it. And I do that with my son now, who is uh, about four, about four years old. And so we do that and the, the whole thing. And it's a, it's a really nice uh kind of tradition to pass along. But um, so I asked that question because we're going to talk today with Sarah McCarthy. She is the owner and lead agent for Dandelion Artists, which is a family and children's music agency. Um, Sarah and I are going to talk a lot about what makes a great family artist, which is why we just had that chat, uh, how she kind of used her intuition to move from being an actor actually into the agent world. Um, we're going to talk about family music and TYA, which means theater for young audiences. Uh, for those that aren't in the know, uh, that's kind of a, a general term that we use for this family and children's uh, sector of the industry. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah McCarthy. I'm the founder of Dandelion Artists. I'm a booking agency owner, a creative producer, and a longtime part of the performing arts industry. Well, welcome to There's No Business Like. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, and I'm really excited to have a chat with you today because we've actually known each other for about five years. We don't get to see each other in person that often. So it's really nice to have a chat. So first of all, um, just how we know each other. We first met in 2017, actually at an Arts Midwest conference. I was wandering the conference hall as a newbie to the conference world, stumbled upon your booth, was really looking to learn more about family and youth presenting. And we just had a really nice chat. I don't know if you remember this, but it was hugely influential for me. Um, and I found some really wonderful artists that you represent that I have been fans of ever since. Oh, that's so nice. Meetings at conferences where somebody stumbles by and then it turns into a wonderful connection. It's like, it's gold. It's what we all hope for. <laughs> Oh, it, it truly is. So Sarah, why don't you get us started with your origin story? How, what's your background and how did you become an agent? Well, I started out with thinking that I was going to be an actor, um, went to theater school and, and definitely kind of had my sights on performing, you know, going to theater school for college and ended up realizing pretty quickly that working as an actor wasn't really my speed in terms of the business. I think that was a real gap in my education is not really understanding what the business of acting was going to end up looking like. Um, and I stumbled into production management um, through some lucky opportunities where I was able to be a production manager for some outdoor festivals and also the Philadelphia International Children's Festival which is this wonderful festival at the Annenberg Center in Philadelphia each year. And I had a chance to work behind the scenes with amazing artists from around the world doing uh, incredible work for young audiences. And that was really my introduction to TYA. And I didn't sort of know it at the time, but it ended up being kind of hugely influential later on in my decision to focus on work for young audiences. After I moved to Los Angeles, um, worked for the LA County Arts Commission for a while, and then got the job at the Getty Center. And that was really the, you know, foundational job um, for my career where I really kind of built my skill set as a presenter and a producer. One of the things that I 
presented there was an outdoor concert series for kids and families um, called the Getty Garden Concerts for Kids series. And I programmed that for about 11 years. The work for kids and families, even before I had kids, was just very meaningful to me. When I became a mom and had my second child, I decided that it was really time for me to move on from the Getty. And in the meantime, I had been saying to all of my agent friends, like, there's this wonderful group of children's music artists out there that don't have representation or don't have representation that I think is really serving them in the right way. And somebody needs to round this group up and, and put a roster together, or, you know, add them to your roster. And I kept saying this to, to a bunch of agent friends. And finally, when it became clear that I needed to move on, um, I talked to my husband. I was like, I think I think I want to try being an agent. And uh, this is either going to be, you know, a great idea or like the most irresponsible idea I've ever had to like quit my stable job and open up this kids music agency. And he was like, do it. You'll regret it if you don't do it. And uh, I did. And that was that was about nine years ago almost exactly nine years ago. Congratulations on your anniversary. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. And what incredible support from your partner. Yeah, I don't think I would have done it without that support, but it ended up really being the right thing for our family, you know, and the first couple of years were tough, but things grew quickly, you know, and I think it just points to, again, to sort of trusting your intuition. This has happened multiple times in my life where I needed to make a decision and it was sort of staring me in the face, even though part of me was like, I don't, what if this doesn't work? I'm not sure if this is going to work, but it was also like what I really wanted. I love that. So you mentioned the series that you had programmed at the Getty with youth and family programming. So what pushed you in that direction? Was it kind of seeing the lack of representation, seeing an opening in the space, or is there something else that made you want to really immerse yourself in youth and family as an agent? I think I've always been inspired by the artists that really do beautiful work. And I specialize in music programming. Music just is an art form that speaks to me. I was a singer and played the guitar, you know, throughout college and still do kind of as a hobby. And I saw these artists out there that were sometimes hard to track down or, um, you know, once I would get a hold of them, like they would quote me a fee that was frankly too low. Right. And I know I was like, oh, you know, you could you just need a little bit of help on the business side. You know, mm -hmm. they had the artistic side, you know, down um, these just some wonderful, wonderful, talented songwriters and singers. Um, and the way they connected with family audiences, I think, is really inspiring. There's nothing more magical than a thousand kids and parents like dancing and singing along you know, on a, on a lawn and an outdoor concert all together. It's this ultimately, it's this ultimate kind of communal music experience um, that just, it makes me tear up. I just, I love it. Um, but putting that series together every year, especially with some of the artists was just harder than it needed to be. And going to conferences like WA or APAP, most of these artists were not represented on the floor of those conferences. And I, I thought, why, you know, and, and that's, that's what inspired me to kind of fill that niche. I love that. So let's take a step back to the moment you decided to be an agent. What 
are those actual steps to opening your own agency? Uh, how do you establish yourself and then start recruiting artists? Everybody's got their own story of how they came into working as an agent. For me, my origin story really starts when I had been working with a bunch of wonderful children's music artists, like I said, in a presenting capacity. And I knew that, um, I, I also knew that I couldn't keep working every weekend producing events like I was doing at the Getty with two kids at home. I was, you know, I wasn't seeing them. And, and I knew that something needed to change for my family and I, and I had this idea about representing these artists because I'd had multiple conversations with different artists about it and about the need for it. I think finally what made it happen for me is I started doing a little bit of consulting on the side, helping some artists negotiate some deals. And because, because also the artists were coming to me and saying like, oh, we really want to take this show, but we're going to lose money on it. And I said, oh, well, why, you know, what did you say when you asked for more money? And they said, oh, well, we didn't ask for more money because we didn't want to you know, hurt their feelings or, you know, and I, and I just said, I kind of stepped in and I said, let me help see if I can negotiate something. And, and of course I was able to get their presenter to increase the fees so that they wouldn't lose money on the show. And I realized that I just sort of had a knack for talking this through because essentially it's the same conversation I was having as a presenter booking the artists I was booking. I just sort of switched sides of the conversation. Some of the artists that I had been working with started to kind of take notice. And in particular, Justin Roberts had seen some of the work that I had done for another band. And he said, I heard that you helped book these shows for them. Is that true? And I said, oh yeah, I've, you know. And he said, well, I'm thinking about leaving my agent. And I was like, oh, and I, I knew his agent. He, he, I was friends with his agent. I was like, well, does, you know, what does she think about this? And I ended up calling her. <laughs> <laughs> and and she and I had a really nice conversation. She was like, please take Justin. I'm so glad it's you. Like, you know, if you're interested in this at all. Um, she was like moving on to sort of different music genres and it, it ended up being a really nice transition. So he was my first client um, with his agent's blessing, which is really the right way to take on an artist that's already represented is, you know, it was a really nice transition. And then once the word sort of got out that I was going to start booking for Justin Roberts, other artists quickly took notice. And within a couple of months, I ended up bringing on board the Okie Dokie Brothers and Secret Agent 23 Skidoo and Recess Monkey. And so that was my roster. Um, when I really quit the Getty and that's how I started. I will say too, like I, I just learned as I went, I started talking to agent friends, you know, I told them that I was doing this and, and the nice thing, it was that I was plugged into this community already. So I had a lot of agents that I admired and their mentorship really helped me get started. I love that. What about the challenges that you found in establishing your own business and then like coming up with a brand, like you're you very much do children's and family's music. So is that something you gravitated towards? And was that a important part of your initial branding of your agency? Yeah, it was. Um, it was really intentional. I think as a buyer on the presenting side, it really is helpful to be able to understand um, at a glance what an agent specializes in. How do you decide which artists to represent? 
is there an X factor that you look for or is it a variety of things that makes you want to work with someone? I want to work with artists who are first and foremost writing really incredible material. I always start with the songwriting myself as a music lover. Um, I, I always start there and want to represent artists that are really saying something in a beautiful, um, fun and, and unique way. Um, and that is a bit of an X factor. I mean, it, it, that goes to my personal taste. I'm also looking for artists who not only can record a wonderful CD, but who can translate that into an incredible live performance. And the ability to interact with kids in a live concert is is a special skill that it can't be taught very easily. And some artists really have it and some don't. And having the opportunity to work as a producer for so many years and watch so many artists come through and perform on our stages at the Getty Center gave me a real window into how and why certain artists could connect so beautifully with young audiences and, and what made that possible. So that's, that's the other thing that I've always been looking for is that interactivity. You know, I think there's sort of a, a teacher quality or just, you know, just taking kids at face value and not talking down to them. Um, you know, really like respecting kids, I think is the heart of it. Also kids are brutally honest. If it's not working, they, I mean, then, then your show is dying, but when yes. they love you, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and then finally artists that are just a pleasure to work with. I just won't, I just can't represent artists that are. That Absolutely. Are <laughs> and and we've all, you know, we've all become, you know, really wonderful friends and, and a family in that way, because um, not only is everybody really good at what they do, but they're, they're super professional and reliable. And I, I put myself out there as much as my artists, you know, um, the presenters trust me to represent artists that can deliver. And, and that's part of what I look for too. So they know if they're on your label they're in the presence of other quality artists. Exactly. So just to someone who isn't an agent, um, I think the artist agent relationship can be a little mysterious in nature. Um, so can you explain how you work with the artists you represent and what that relationship is like? Um, I joke with other agent friends of mine. It's very much like a marriage. Um, you really have to get to know each other and, and what your goals are and what each of you can bring to the table. I'm not the perfect agent for every artist out there and, and vice versa. Um, it's, it's really about, do our goals fit with each other? Do I know the types of, you know, presenters at the types of venues that they want to perform in? And is their show right for those series? You know, that sort of understanding what the goals are and what the potential is, I think it's really, really important. Um, and then for me, it's it's a long-term relationship. You know, it is something that takes a few years to really get going um, and have success with. Yeah, it's nice to have that feedback loop, right? Because you're hearing directly from presenters in terms of what they are looking for, whether it's themes, you know, they want to pull out from your artist music, um, engagement opportunities. We've worked together in that way. Um, but what is the actual process of routing 
building tours and booking gigs? Well, I think the pandemic has changed everything, which is, you know, the understatement of the decade. But, you know, we used to rely more heavily on, you know, routing when I was, you know, would pitch a price and say like, well, we can do it for this price if we can get some other presenters in your area. Um, Right now, I mean, that's still the case, but I would say that we're a little more conservative in quoting fees to make sure that we get those travel expenses covered. And then if we can if we can build more dates around it, then we can sort of split some of those fees among the presenter. But we also need one presenter to be willing to uh, shoulder those expenses um, if they're the first presenter in the area that wants to bring them out. The nice thing about representing music is that it doesn't need to be a contiguously routed tour for eight weeks the way a larger children's theater production needs to be. That's one of the things that I think has made my roster really nimble and easy to book because we can, you know, zip out for a weekend, play a series of shows, and then the artists fly home with the instruments on the plane. And we're not in a situation where the van has to drive from city to city. That said, I have a new show (laughs) that is a musical theater piece, which is totally going to need to be a contiguously routed tour. And um, I am learning how to do that um, and how important that routing is. I've also pulled in uh, my friends at Holden and Arts to help consult on that. They are just pros at booking routed tours. And it's a real specialty that I'm learning. that I'm not an expert in yet, but, uh, but I, I knew who to call um, and they're helping me think some of that through. The fees, uh, how to quote a fee is something that incorporates, you know, so much more than just the artist's time during the show. Um, there's a whole level of groundwork and marketing and songwriting and recording and all, you know, all this other artistic work that happens. The fee doesn't directly, you know, repay some of those costs, but it is part of the world picture for the artist for their income and and how they're going to make their songwriting career, you know, end up in the black at the end of the year um, between radio play and live performances and selling merch uh, at the concerts. And so all of that goes into setting the fees in concert with my artists very, very closely. So I was on a call with folks from the TYA industry and uh, someone mentioned that their artists that they work in, in in particular really had not had a pay raise. They had not seen their fees go up in about 10 years time, I guess, like made a lot of sense to me, but also was completely shocking. So have you seen kind of the same trend where artist fees have really stayed the same in the time you've been working as an agent? Or have you seen kind of, you know, cost of living increases? Or can we have you been able to adjust artist fees according to what they really truly need? I will say in the years leading up to the pandemic that yes, we were we were steadily, slowly and steadily increasing fees, um, especially as those, you know, shows were successful in other places. And we could kind of point to the audiences that were coming out and and um, and the value that they were bringing to the venues. Um, that was really growing up to the pandemic. I think the pandemic really stunted everything. We're all just trying to make it work. We've still, in some of those shows we're rescheduling, you know, we're honoring the terms of the shows that we booked in 2019 or 2020 with the same fees now. And obviously expenses are, have gone way, way up. Travel, um, 
in particular was terrible this summer. I, I will say that there were some presenters who I went back to this summer um, with deals that we had negotiated back in 2020 or, you know, 2019 um, for these shows that ended up being rescheduled. And, and I said, look, that the travel expenses that we estimated back then are not covering the real expenses now. And, you know, our shortfall is $700 or, you know, and I would come to them with real numbers and say, this is, you know, this is what we're looking at. And I'll say like, I had, this happened three or four times and those presenters um, did end up giving us that extra money, which was hugely helpful. And, and again, this goes to the relationships, right? Of like, we're not, we're not trying to pull one over on each other. We're really trying to make sure that the artists don't um, end up losing money. Yeah, absolutely. And what would be your ask of presenters then who you're in that conversation with, um, especially those that are new, aren't maybe used to negotiating or don't really know what industry standard is, what would you want them to know or what would your advice be to them that are having this conversation with you or another agent regarding those factors? I would just say transparency. Uh, you know, I, I think that was the key this summer uh, was really just coming back to them with our you know, flight receipts and saying, this is, this is where we're at that, you know, I, I think everybody understands too, that costs are going up. Um, it's, it's not just us, it's, it's everybody. Um, and, and I would say real, you know, transparency and honesty and, but also not being afraid to ask for what you need. Also, I made it a point to say like, look, I'm not going to take a commission on these flight expenses. This is, you know, this is really just covering these travel expenses for the artists. And I think that they could understand that I was really trying to, you know, work with them there. Now you mentioned a new musical theater project, and I know you've embarked down a new road in your work in the last like two years or so, um, moving into the production space and working with one of your artists on a brand new project. Can you tell us a little bit about it and some of the challenges of becoming a producer on top of being an agent. <laughs> One of my artists, Jazzy Ash, uh, who, her name is Ashley St. Armand. Um, she and I have been working together for many years uh, with her concert program that she's toured all over the US. Um, she's an incredible writer and songwriter. And she started writing this musical about three or four years ago um, and told me about it. It's a story that's inspired by um, her ancestors, her family's based uh, outside of New Orleans in Louisiana um, for generations. She can actually trace her ancestry to a plantation in Bashery, Louisiana, which is just outside of New Orleans. Um, and she wrote this play called North about the Underground Railroad and about um, some of the folks who escaped. It's a fictional story, but everything in the play is based on um, something that actually happened to real people. Um, she did an incredible amount of research. So the play itself was hugely exciting and inspiring to me. And she started playing for me some of the songs. And I, I just, I just thought, man, this is, this is incredible. And she said, you know, how would we like, how could we get this off the ground? Like, what would we do? And I decided to take it to some of the presenters who had presented her work before uh, and ask them if they would want to support uh, this new project. And the lead center in Lawrence, Kansas um, was one of those venues. And they were the first ones to, to come on board and, and they felt the work was really important and they loved working with Ashley and they were our first commissioning partner. Pulling commissioning partners 
together and, and adding them to this project. And that whole conversation was very new for me, but it was also very exciting because I believed in the work and, um, and I just, you know, once people started saying yes, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. We're, we're going to produce this play. We've got four wonderful co-commissioners. Um, we're in rehearsals right now. Uh, they're rehearsing it in Southern California at Sagerstrom Center for the Arts, which is one of our presenting um, co-commissioners. You know, being a part of the development of this piece um, has been hugely exciting. It's It's actually, you know, brought me back to some of my theater school days. You know, I'm, I'm kind of part of the production crew again, um, really leaning into my directing experience um, and my programming experience. And it's, uh, it's hugely exciting. What's the challenge of balancing that like active creation uh, and being kind of on the back end with all the other stuff you have going on? Because you still have a full roster of artists that you're repping at the same time. You know, it's really hard, if not impossible, to do everything on your own. And as a solo entrepreneur, sometimes you feel like, oh my God, it's all on my shoulders. And, and there have been times where I've sort of forgotten that like, oh, maybe I could reach out and find somebody else to help me with this part of the business. Um, and so I've got, I've, I've still got two women who are working part-time for me right now who are just incredible. Um, and I don't think I would be able to have taken this project on without their help. So on top of our mutual love of youth and family programming, um, something we have in common is that we're both women and working moms um, in this industry. Um, so I specifically remember last season, uh, we were working together to try and finalize a booking. I don't know if you remember this, but I was on deadline. You were trying to prep to leave for spring break, I think with your family. And there's a three hour time difference between us. So because of all of that chaos happening, like we're finalizing this booking. I'm in the car, had just picked up my son from preschool. I'm on speakerphone. You're like trying to get out the door. And that was okay. Like we could hear the kids in the background and all this stuff, but that was okay. That's just how we were going to get the business done. Right. And then everyone was going to be able to go on vacation and like go about the days. <laughs> and I remember, um, I called my son, honey bunny, like in the backseat, you're like, Oh, I call my kids, honey, Bunny. you know, it was just like <laughs> one of those moments of like camaraderie, um, in the business and really truly understanding where each other were coming from. And that like, this is just life. This is how we're getting it done. So, and I sort of hate this question, but I think it's worth conversation. What's your experience been like first as a woman, second, as a mom, um, and third, an entrepreneur taking on a business venture yourself. What has that been like kind of holding those identities together in this industry? For me, the secret is that it's never exactly in balance. You're cooking on a stove with like six different pots going and you can really only stir one or two at a time. And, and I think, you know, just realizing too, that you can, you can really try to keep your eye on everything. Um, but some things need more attention or demand that attention. And, and you're, you know, we're all just doing the best that we can. Being a parent is so all encompassing. Um, and you want your kids to like know what you do and kind of be a part of it. And, and man, during the pandemic, there were so many times where like my daughter was, you know, doing her homework under my desk. The kids are just everywhere and, and, and a part of my life in such a wonderful way. But at the same time, trying to get time to focus on both sides, on the business or on my kids feels like you're always leaving one thing behind. And I'm not really sure what the answer is. I don't know anybody who's, who's would raise their hand and say, I figured out the work-life balance. You know, I, 
um, especially the the parenting. There are times when I really have to shut my door and say, you know, I can't help you right now. I'll be out in two hours. Um, and there are times when I have to shut off my computer and just say, like, I didn't, I didn't finish everything, but I, you know, I got to drive the kids to teen practice or, you know, whatever we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just having to be okay with that. Um, uh, lots of times I say, you know, like the good thing is I'm not like working in the emergency room, right? Like people aren't dying right now. It's, it's not it, life or death. Yeah. Uh, almost everything can, you know, can wait a few hours or can wait a day, um, which is nice. And, and when it can't, then, you know, then you get kids in the background of, of the cell phone conversation and that's okay. too. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally okay. Um, and, you know, as a professional, like I really appreciated the fact that you were totally okay with the fact that I was in the car, right? I'm not sitting at my desk in my office and being all professional, like this is life. This is how we have to get this done. Um, and I, I personally, just as a, a friend and colleague really appreciated that about you. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that flexibility is key and, and just being like, you know, and, and understanding that, you know, we are multifaceted people, right? It's like our families do come first and, uh, you know, yes, we want to do these wonderful programs, but, but we also are dedicated to our personal lives and that's, that's good. Um, that's, that is the most important thing. Um, and I think helping each other do that, uh, is, is one of the things, one of the best things we can do to help each other figure out to how to get a little closer to that balance. I agree. Think about when you were first starting out in the field, going back to like when you're first getting into theater and presenting, what do you wish you had known then that you know now? In my career over and over again, there have been moments where I didn't know what to do or I felt out of my element. Um, and, and I would say, you know, leaning into relationships with people that you trust, professional relationships, um, other other colleagues that you admire that do a really great job um, and talking to them about the issue that you're having, um, you know, people are very generous with their thoughts and advice and, and leaning into that, um, is something that I had to do over the years that really benefited me, um, and helped me work through some difficult situations. Um, and then I would also say just trusting my intuition too. Um, if I could say to my, like, you know, 25 year old self, like, look, you know, trust that when you feel like this is the right decision, I think, you know, lean into what your feelings are telling you, you know, more so than what, like, even other people's opinions at times, and also knowing whose opinion to dismiss. Um, Several people, when I um, said that I was going to start this agency, uh, approached me um, and said, oh, you know, this is, this is a really sweet idea, Sarah, but there's no money in kids music and, and said that to me point blank. And these were people like in the children's music industry. And I, I said, Oh, well, okay. Um, thanks for that thought. Um, and, and I, you know, went home and I, and I was like, well, there's no money in the way that you're approaching children's music, but my idea is a little different, you know, and, and, and having the wherewithal to just say, you know what, I'm just going to ignore that comment um, again, and, uh, and go forward, you know, with my idea. Um, I, I think, I think if I could just, you know, pat my younger self on the back and say, you do know what to do, you know, you just have to, you know, 
be flexible and, and keep going. So thanks for sharing that. Last question. What do you love most about working in the performing arts industry today? I love the people in this industry. I love my artists. Um, they're incredibly creative and uh, professional and um, put their heart and soul into their work. And, and so do, you know, my agent colleagues and my presenter colleagues. Um, I have to say we all are doing this because, because we love the kind of work we do and, and being able now, like after what we've all been through to kind of put our arms around each other and say, like, let's, let's keep going. Like let's move forward and, and create new work is hugely rewarding. Um, it's all about the relationships. I love that. And that's a perfect note to end on Sarah. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It has been so lovely chatting with you and glad we got to dig into some of these, some of my burning questions, at least about your work, um, and what it's like to work in TYA and be a fabulous agent like you. Katie, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And welcome back. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. I know that I did. She's a, a dear friend and colleague, and we really had a great chat. So we're going to kick off with Kevin. What did you think? I thought it was a great interview, and I thought it was really interesting. I think it's interesting the callback to our previous conversation in that none of us really here listened to children's family music growing up. But now, like, it is very prevalent, I think, not only in our lives, for those of us that, you know, uh, for those of you that do have kids, um, but just in our programming, like I think it's way more prevalent. And just her comment about, you know, that, you know, there is no money in uh, children's and family music. And it turns out that there is if you market it right, if you get out there and tell people about it. And so it's interesting to think about from the time that we were kids to now that people like Sarah helped build that market and help propel people like, you know, Justin Roberts and um, and people on her roster. I love her response to that criticism that was voiced to her whenever she was starting out that, yeah, there there hasn't been any money in, it in the way that you've been doing it. Yes. But mm -hmm. I've got some different ideas and I'm going to move forward differently. And And there is an industry to be had here. If we treat these like the respectable musicians that they actually are, they're just making the music for a different audience. But treating them like the professionals that they are, they're they're fantastic and wonderful and she has multiple multiple grammy award winners on her roster which speaks to the level of artist and musician that she has yeah she trusted her intuition and just like other people that we've interviewed talked about following your bliss she knew that this was something that brought her joy and that she just could market it to make it a, into a living and i do think half of our job is gut is intuition and half of our jobs in this industry is then following the data and the numbers and, and looking at that but there's there is that moment where you like just have to make the leap whether that is booking a show pulling together some sort of community event um, or changing jobs changing fields changing you know the direction you're headed in the the course of your career um, so I really do think that that conversation about intuition has a lot of juice to it. Katie, I love what you said right there about mentioning changing course and going with your intuition because she went with her intuition to to move in a direction that was better for her family and to move away from a career that she had established herself in to take a big risk from a career standpoint, but one that really moved her well to, to take care of her family better and to be in a better position to have a balance 
with her family. Yeah, Josh. And, you know, I love this conversation and bringing this conversation to to a wider audience because I've had a lot of conversations like this, especially with other moms in this industry, but also um, with fathers um, and other caregivers. You know, it's really hard to balance the day to day of, you know, whatever, whatever's on your plate at that time, the future forward stuff you're working on, your next season, your budget, and also making sure that you're seeing work live that you might want to book, but also work that fills your soul that might not be right for your venue. And a lot of that stuff happens during family time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real struggle and it, and it's a really hard way to find a balance. Well, and that, that brings us to like the conversation that Katie had with her about, you know, about the phone call that they had and, and how they met each other where they, where they were in the hecticness of getting ready for spring break and, and picking up your son from preschool and I think there's a an amazing place in this industry now, especially coming out of the pandemic, mm-hmm. to have a lot more understanding for people in they're not going to be sitting in the office in a professional environment whenever they take your phone call half the time. Yeah, I think we're we're normalizing that um, that side of the business and just you know starting to be more accepting of that and just understanding that you know life happens. One thing that Sarah said that I really loved was that that this can wait two hours. It can wait until the next day because like your family is a very important thing and. As somebody who, you know, doesn't have kids, um, but I've got a lot of close friends who have kids and staff members who have kids that, you know, trying to understand that balance and being being open to, to their situation and being able to understand, say like, hey, I understand like you need to get out of here at a certain time because you've got to go take care of your kid or just understanding that doing our best to achieve that work-life balance or creating an environment where you can best try to achieve that because I think she's right. I mean, we all strive for a perfect work-life balance. Um, and, you know, I think as soon as I think that I've got there, like something else explodes and then I'm like, oh yeah, I'm back to work or I'm back to doing this. So. And it, it doesn't have to just center around family either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got acreage and, and uh, you know, the Benson Ranch that I live on. And uh, I often take calls while I'm out on the tractor and Nothing disarms an agent more than saying, hey, I'm sitting on the tractor, but I'm happy to talk to you. (laughs) Business continues to move forward. And I think, especially right now, people are happy to meet you where you are, whether it's on a tractor or picking up your child. Yeah, Katie, I'm I'm really glad you asked this question because... um... You know, I'm not a mom, but I am a parent and I totally related to it. I liked her analogy of stirring too many pots because I love to cook and I often go a little bit overboard sometimes with doing big meals, having too many things going at once. And I'll accidentally maybe once in a while burn something and it's okay, you know, and just like she said, it's okay to to have those times where you've got to close the door and you tell the family, sorry, I need these two hours for work. But also it's okay to turn off the phone or get up even if you're not done with that important work project because your family needs you. And I, I really appreciated that. And that work-life balance looks different for everybody. And we're not ever going to solve the conundrum that is balancing work and life and family obligations, whether that's your kids or your parents or other, you know, other needs. And then just the need for like your own personal social time. Kevin, like you don't have kids, but your time is also valuable. So finding that balance, it's never going to be perfect. But to the point about normalizing it, the more we talk about it and the more we give each other grace and just recognize that like, this is the way it is now, the more permission we give to others, even though we don't really need to, but I think we we sometimes feel that we need that. Um, the more permission we give to others to take the phone in the, the phone call in the car, on the tractor, you know, on your way to whatever activity it is, um, 
or to say, yeah, I'll get I'll get to that tomorrow. And I think you're right, Katie. I mean, the more we talk about it, the more it becomes normalized and the more people in leadership can start to understand that um, because we work in a challenging industry. I mean, we we have late hours, weekends and all sorts of things, and that can be a difficult balance. And I think, too, there can be a misconception that if you say you love your job or you're passionate about your job or you're doing this thing that is your dream, that for some reason you will work all hours of the day because because it's your passion. At least for me, that was sort of how I saw my life as a young professional. And it's kind of easy to see wrapping your identity up in this love and passion that you have. But there's no reason that any of these jobs should be exempt from like regular work uh, standards for other industries. Um, and, you know, we do need to look at work-life balance because we're not just artists and arts creators, but like we do need to be parents and we do need um, to be all of these other things in our lives. Well, thank you all for having this conversation today. I think it's really valuable, especially for those just coming into our industry. And I hope we continue to have these conversations um, in many different forums and formats. So thanks again for joining us on There's No Business Like, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the No Business Like podcast. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. You can find and follow us everywhere at nobusinesslike.com, which has links to all of our socials. Stay in touch, my friends. Oh my gosh, my um, vacuum cleaner is going in the background. <laughs> We're going to take a pause because my dog is scratching at the door. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay. So what I left out is that I'm carrying on that tradition because I told my daughter that tag team was playing at Aiba. And I was like, yeah, they play Whoop, there it is. And she's like, Whoop, there it is. And like knew it.